You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed. We talk about the Bank of Canada, the fiscal story in the U.S., particularly the tax policy, and inflation, and how to think about that while constructing your portfolio. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnerr, and I'm here with Dustin Reed for our bi-weekly conversation. Welcome back, Dustin. Thanks very much for having me back, Matt. I'd like to get started with the uh, recent meeting from the Bank of Canada. Uh, let me know what you thought about the meeting, uh, anything surprising coming out of it, uh, and, and overall reaction. Yeah, for sure. So the bank uh, had its meeting on the 21st of April, and uh, the bank ended up tapering as almost everybody uh, expected. I would say that in the and the meeting was on a Wednesday, I would say on, on the Monday, Tuesday, there was actually a, a decent amount of market chatter going on that the bank may not taper. Um, and that actually did not happen, uh, end up be, that did not end up being the case. So the bank did, did taper as was, uh, well expected, um, from 4 billion, uh, a week to 3 billion a week. Um, somewhat of a surprise, uh, was at least, at least to myself and maybe a few others on the street who had, had been ex- expecting the bank to maybe stop, uh, purchases inside the two year space and reallocate those funds a little further up the curve, maybe in the seven to 10 year bucket. The bank looks like it's not going to do that. Uh, and it's going mm-hmm. to just reallocate on a pro rata basis. So it looks like they will continue uh, to purchase inside the, the two year space. So that, that was a bit, at least from my side and a number of the other uh, kind of major houses uh, on Bay Street, um, that, that, that was a bit of a surprise. And then somewhat of a surprise, um, additionally to that, the bank kind of went, Beyond what I was calling the, uh, the accounting side and went a little more on the fundamental side. And by that, I mean that, um, uh, the bank, the bank brought forward its, uh, expectation that it would close the output gap from the first half of 2023 to the second half of 2022. And that, mm-hmm. that in itself was quite a, quite a hawkish statement. And, um, even though the market had already started to price in the possibility of, uh, Bank of Canada rate hikes before the end of 2022. Uh, that, that, that move by the bank and those of us that have followed the bank for a long time, uh, know that the bank puts a pretty heavy, significant, uh, weight on, uh, the output gap as one of the key metrics for, uh, monetary policy. Uh, so seeing that happen and ha- watching the bank bring that forward from the first half of 23 to the second half of 22 was a, a clear hawkish signal that uh, the bank thinks that things here, you know, the current situation on the COVID side, which is obviously you know, very challenging in, in many parts of the country, you know, will be uh, temporary. And that's the bank's view. And, and looking through that and believing that the output gap is going to close. And, you know, and when you look at it from a, from a, uh, an employment perspective, you know, Canada has made up on a percentage basis has made up more of the jobs that it lost, uh, from the initial onset of COVID last year. You know, versus the U.S. So simply put, the, the labor market, at least on a gross, um, you know, headline basis, is is doing better than the U.S. Um, and so I'd say that you know that was all pretty surprising. Uh, 
uh, you know, particularly the hawkishness from, from the bank. I don't think people, I think people expected the bank to be pretty constructive, but, you know, outright hawkish, no. And, uh, you know, the bank, and the bank also moved up its expectations for the year in terms of growth. Um, you know, it had, uh, at the January forecast meeting, it had, I think, a, a minus, um, minus two or minus two and a half expectation for, uh, growth in Q1 for real GDP growth. Uh, that number is now at, uh, around plus huge it's a huge swing uh and it kind of underpins you know the rationale why the bank was quite a bit more constructive you know slash hawkish versus um where i think a few people expected the bank kind of going into the meeting so um you know going forward on the bank you know we're going to have a another meeting here that's not a forecast meeting we'll have another forecast meeting in in July. And, uh, you know, if the bank continues to have this type of constructive outlook, um, it is, you know, another, another taper would, would, would not surprise, maybe not for July, but it's going to keep the door open. The bank will keep the door open, uh, for another taper, uh, sooner rather than later, uh, to be sure. So quite, quite an interesting, quite an interesting meeting and a little bit more fireworks, I would say, than, uh, than maybe many. Uh, expected heading into uh, the April NPR. Thanks, Dustin. Just a, a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, first, the the, uh, the GDP uh, number, I think you were saying GDP number, ranged from uh, the expectation changed significantly. What were those numbers again? So it was uh, the bank had originally in, in January expected Q1 real GDP growth to be minus 0.2% for the quarter Q1. And it now expects, we're still waiting for the numbers. We'll get them at the end of May. But the bank now expects Q1 GDP to be plus seven, uh, oh, wow. quarter over quarter, uh, uh, you know, uh, seasonally adjusted basis on an annualized basis. That's a, ma- that's a massive swing to state the obvious. Sure. Nine, nine percentage points on, on real GDP. And again, that, that underscores, I think, why the bank was so, uh, so much more constructive and slash hawkish, uh, at the meeting, maybe versus expectations, you know, that. That's very very strong start to the year. Obviously, carries through from an accounting national accounts perspective, and uh, you know I think that's that's why the bank, uh, in a in a good in a you know uh, in a good way, was 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 quite a bit more constructive than most people expected. Right. Uh, secondary uh, follow up question to that: You talked about the tapering, uh, and that they're still um, purchasing on a pro rata basis uh, before. Uh, on previous conversations, you uh, mentioned Bank of Canada was getting uncomfortable holding more than 50% of the outstanding bonds and they were getting precariously close on that short end of the curve. Are, are they, are they thinking of owning more than that 50% or is that, is that important in any way, shape or form, or do they just sort of uh, decide to do it out of, uh, you know, convenience or, or, or because market expectations or, or what, what's, what's the rationale there? No, it's a good question. I think, um, uh, in many ways, I think the first question is, is part of the second insofar as because the economy is doing a lot better than expected, the labor market, you know, and growth, the Fed, uh, sorry, <laughs> Bank Canada probably did not feel the need to have to reallocate, uh, purchases within the two year space towards kind of that seven to 10 year, you know, sweet spot on the, on the curve, you know, and where many people look for credit and keep those rates. I don't know if I artificial is the right word, but artificially lower than they needed to be right. because the economy is doing better. 
it probably didn't think, okay, we need to reallocate. We can kind of let this, we can kind of let this go. So I think the fundamental story does kind of drive why the bank, you know, did what it did. And, you know, for myself, I mean, I was going into the meeting looking at it much more from the accounting hitting the 50% ceiling. Um, but the bank took a much more of a, of a fundamental view, you know, from, you know, from, from the QE allocation perspective. There was nothing to answer kind of the first part of your question. There was nothing from the bank that I saw with respect to being uh, uncomfortable with the 50% uh, holdings of, uh, of, of the federal uh, sovereign uh, market. Um, they didn't talk about 55 or 60% or tweaking it or anything like that. So it still seems to be the, um, still seems to be the level of choice for the bank. Great. Uh, maybe we'll move down south now. Um, uh, recently, obviously, we had uh, Biden come out with a, a new stimulus package. Um, we talked uh, last podcast about uh, this changing and morphing over time as it, as it works its way through Congress and the Senate. So what's the latest there? I know that there's been some news on the tax front as well. So maybe catch us up to date on that and uh, and get your reaction and, uh, to that. Yeah, for sure. So exactly like we talked about the last podcast, we're kind of moving into the next phase here, um, which may have one or two two parts. But uh, this phase is going to be much more heavily focused on infrastructure and uh, you know money raised to pay for that infrastructure. Both via corporate and personal taxes, as well as you know, other types of taxes and uh, pay and pay fors. Um, but this money will be uh, spent over multiple years. So the big, um, the big spend, like we had uh, last year on a couple of occasions, and earlier this year uh, on the back of the 1.9 trillion dollar package, is probably not going to happen because the infrastructure stuff takes quite a bit longer to come together and uh, will be pieced out over time. So the fiscal implication is not as uh, as significant. And I think, you know, because of that, uh, the pay for us, particularly the tax side, was getting a lot more attention when it got, uh, you know, trial ballooned uh, in the last week or so. And you saw Biden float the idea of a, uh, a top, at least a top uh, capital gains tax of, um, uh, you know, 39% plus the, uh, Plus the, the the one-off tax, um, which would put uh, which would put the top capital gains rate above forty-three percent. And then, of course, if you couple that with some state taxes, uh, there'd be many state state payers, um, like in California, New York, and other states that would be paying um, over fifty percent on on the marginal. Um, and that's obviously seen to be you know, a pretty a pretty serious rate. Um, I think that, and clearly the market reacted to that. We had a we had a down day in risk, and you know probably, probably rightly so. But you know it was relatively short lived. I would say an, a couple of things here. One, there's a long way to go, a, a really long way to go in terms of the uh, the negotiating, between, you know, inside the party, within the Senate, within the House, between the House and the Senate, the executive, uh, Treasury. There, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, key stakeholders here, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion to be had. So uh, I wouldn't be even though Biden was successful on passing a 1.9 trillion dollar package, which was essentially the number that he announced for the his COVID relief package. I don't think that these tax numbers, you know, as floated, are necessarily the numbers that are going to go into law. There's there's a, a bit of a you know a, a poorly kept secret in in Washington that I've heard from a few of my contacts that um, 
the magic number for capital gains on the curve, uh, and I use the curve, the term curve uh, uh, specifically uh, because the back half of it is regressive, is 28%. Uh, 28% is by many measures the, the optimal capital gains rate where Washington can maximize its uh, you know, money collected. Anything beyond 28% tends to see a reduction for, for, uh, you know, for a few reasons, uh, shirking and, uh, you know, not, not, you know, trying to get around things would be, would be one and maybe not even, and maybe not even getting investments uh, or not even getting involved in investments or certain investments, uh, would, would be another. So obviously 28 and 43% are quite a long ways away from each other. Um, I'm not saying it's going to end up at 28, but what I'm saying is that there seems to be a lot of space here. And I think that that number is going to be, uh, you know, the 43 number is going to be retroactively seen as, as quite high. Um, obviously, uh, on the, on the estate side and on the personal side, Biden's also trying to, uh, increase those numbers as well. Those numbers are going to be very much up for debate, uh, in terms of, uh, how high, uh, uh how high they are going to get. And I, I highly suspect that the state and local tax um, credit, uh, or deduction maybe is the, the, the proper word. So a state and local tax or SALT deduction that was, um, cut significantly, not phased out, but cut significantly, I believe, to a max of $10,000. Um, as part of the Trump tax plan, uh, will be a big part of, uh, how this comes together and will probably come back on. So what you might lose, what you might lose in, I mean, everyone's different, but, what you might lose in income, depending if you're a homeowner and where you're levered up, which could be a lot because rates are low, um, you may gain back in salt. <laughs> so, um, there's a long way to go here. And, uh, you know, we'll, we will see. But I think that, um, you know, the Republicans are trying to come out with, uh, kind of going to the first act, a real infrastructure package, uh, that they, they would say is real, uh, closer to, um, 900 billion. Um, that, that's really more focused on, on kind of hard, you know, hard assets, bridges, roads, airports, ports, uh, you know, infrastructure that, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to get behind that. And Manchin, who we've mentioned a number of times on this podcast, who's probably the more, uh, you know, right, the most right leaning of the, uh, senators has said, um, of the Democrat senators, uh, that there's, uh, there's some merit. I think the exact quote might be slipped up, but there was, some merit to uh, the Republicans' proposal. So it tells you there's a long way to go here. And uh, the market is going to continue. We're going to continue. We are going to continue to get headlines that are shockers. And, you know, the, the, the capital gains one was one for sure. Um, so I, you know, it's not unexpected, at least, you know, to, to us. Um, but we will, we will get more surprise. We will get more surprise headlines and the market will react. Uh, I would, I would advise you know, investors to just kind of not, not play headline ping pong and just kind of step back a bit and, and watch, uh, watch how the process is coming together. Again, continue to watch how, how Manchin and a few of the other, uh, senators, uh, from the Democrat side you know, react to those things, um, in terms of, uh, the probability of it, of it getting through. But I think we're, you know, we, we've got a we've got a while to go here, and I don't think that we're going to be getting something done before the summer. At this point, I think this is going to be a probably a uh, a late summer or uh, or early fall um, 
agenda item or, or you know, bill passing is probably a better way to say it. And when I say late summer, I include the first part of September. Great. So I guess given that, um, do you think that the timeline is, is heading into the fall uh, for this to be passed? You know, and you, you referenced you know, the headline ping pong. How do, how do professional investors react to, to these to this news, like it sounds like there's trial balloons that are going out. You see how it goes over in the public. You know, you make adjustments accordingly, but markets do react to this. Um, For sure. Yeah, I'm just curious, like how, how does that process unfold, and, and where should we start being more concerned or take it more seriously? Is it, is it simply a timing thing as we get closer to the to the uh, to the fall? I mean, from you know, from the professional investing side, I mean, I think I would like to think a lot of people you know, who've been around a little bit aren't, aren't trading off every headline. Um, yeah. kind of, and kind of stepping back and, and looking at, at what's, what's possible. And this is what I try to, you know, help, you know, help with in terms of, you know, where policy and, and markets kind of intersect, uh, and interact, um, trying to understand as best. And, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but trying to understand where, uh, you know, where, where policy really is and where, you know, what's important and what's not and filtering out the noise and, um, you know, kind of, kind of understanding where the sweet spot is like that, that 28%, uh, number as an example for, uh, capital gains, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, from, from, from a Washington or an IRS perspective, you know, it kind of gives you, again, maybe it, it probably won't end up exactly there, but it gives you a bit of a, a flag in the ground in terms of, right. you know, where I think things are going to end up, you know, in terms of, and I think, I think a lot of professional investors, um, you know, do that and, you know, they're looking on a multi-quarter basis. Right. And I would say, you know, um, the corporate tax rate is clearly a big driver here. Right. And we want to see what's happening with that. <clears throat> the proposal was initially going from 21 to 28 and then Biden backed off of it <laughs> relatively quickly. Um, and, you know, I think, I think it could settle around 25 and it could be, uh, it could be phased in over years, right? So there's a big difference between a seven percentage point increase happening, you know, January 1st and, uh, a total of four percentage points happening over, you know, three years or, or something right. over, you know, sorry, January 1st. And that's a very big difference in terms of the impact on EPS and equities. I'm not an equity guy. Obviously, I'm not, you know, trying to say that, but, um, you know, from equities, from a, from a risk appetite perspective and how it, and how it, you know, affect, would affect fixed income markets. So I think that's, you know, I think keeping all that stuff in front of you is, you know, is, um, is pretty, is pretty important, uh, in terms of how to, you know, and how to watch in terms of how to watch markets. But what the things I would be looking for again would be, uh, you know, not to put an emphasis on one person because that's dangerous, but, you know, keep an eye on what Joe Manchin out of West Virginia. Senator, you know, Democrat Senator from West Virginia, what he's saying, how he reacts, whether that's print or an interview or anything like that. Uh, that's, that's a very good barometer of what's going to happen. Uh, listening to, uh, Biden, maybe not yelling as much because I don't think it's her personality per se, but kind of what Biden and the executive are saying around the openness for pushing another bill through rec- via reconciliation. Versus bipartisanship, uh, discussions, bipartisan discussions. If you hear that it's kind of reconciliation, 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 and the bipartisan narrative has, 
you know, diminish significantly. Like, like we heard really, like we really felt that wind change, uh, in Q1. I think it was in February. And I said to the team, like, wow, like I'm really hearing there's nothing on bipartisan and it's gone in the last right. week. Then there was kind of that, okay, they're going to try and jam it, jam it through by reconciliation. If we hear that again, if we see that again, I think it's important. I think it's telling and that'll tell you that, okay, it's probably, it's probably going to, they're at least going to take a swing at it from reconciliation. And that probably means, you know, higher than, higher than expected tax rates across the board, whether that's, you know, whether it's corporate, estate, personal, capital gains, you know, other, you know, that sort of thing. So those are kind of the, you know, those are kind of the, the two, two metrics um, to, to keep an eye on, I would say, in terms of the, the cadence of how this is going to, going to progress here for the next few months. Um, final question for you. Uh, we've talked a lot about inflation over the past. Uh, we got a uh, inflation number in uh, that uh, was picked up uh, on a lot of headlines. Uh, what was your thought on the, the most recent print? Uh, in line with your expectations uh, or, or not? And, and how should we think about it going forward? So, yeah, I know the inflation number obviously is, uh, and, and set of prints we're getting throughout Q2 here is, is a, is an important, is a very important metric kind of back to, back to fundamentals in, in many ways. And we've talked about it here in this space a couple of times, I think. Um, it was, it was basically in line with my, with my expectations. Uh, obviously we got the base, the effects of the base, uh, effects, uh, the impact of the base effects, but I would say it, um, you know, over 2020, when we saw prices plunge at the beginning of the, of the, of the pandemic. Um, so we kind of have the first, kind of the first, you know, you know, piece of, piece of information from that perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, you didn't really see inflation markets trade too heavily off it. Um, you know, 10 year break evens were not, not significantly impacted. It could be a bit early here. Um, you know, I definitely want to see the April and May data that's going to be out in May and June, uh, respectively. And, uh, you know, I think that'll, that'll give a bit more fuller picture as to, uh, how temporary is, is the inflation spike or, or as the Fed would say transitory, how transitory is, is this, is the spike? Um, and is there going to be a lot of follow through? Uh, or is it going to, uh, you know, move back lower? And it's one of the reasons, although not the only reason, but one of the reasons we think that, uh, the Fed is, you know, at this point, not going to, um, uh, move away from, uh, the taper talk, uh, at the June FOMC. We think that, right. uh, you know, any, any kind of discussion around taper, uh, could come a little later in the summer. Uh, I'm right now, I'm focusing on the Jackson Hole. Uh, symposium, which happens every year, uh, put on by the Kansas City Fed, um, you know, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And it's generally like the, the big con, uh, confab of the year, not only of, of Fed officials, but also of, um, also of, uh, you know, other global central bankers, uh, although it'll be a little bit more, uh, virtual, um, <laughs> again, this year than, than, than previous years. Um, but that, that seems to me like a little, a little bit of a better time to roll things out, um, cause you have a little bit more, a little bit more information on a couple of fronts. One on um, will inflation be temporary, uh, or, or the higher inflation will it be, you know, temporary or not? Because um, the Fed will really only have had just barely had the May data when it gets to the June FOMC meeting, and it won't really be encapsulated in its forecast. And then second, um, you know, uh, St. Louis uh, Fed President Bullard 
made an interesting comment, I think, since our last discussion. Uh, uh, he would like to see 75% uh, uh, vaccination rate to get uh, herd immunity before the Fed begins discussion around uh, tapering. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's interesting in itself. Um, you know, uh, Bullard is a very smart guy, um, been around the Fed system a long time, sometimes says things a little bit um, in advance or, you know, ahead of when maybe the rest of the Fed would like uh, that kind of information gone. But I think it says a couple of things. One, there's probably a discussion happening at some level, whether it's, you know, at the district level at this in, in St. Louis uh, or at the or at the board level in D.C. I mean, there is a discussion going on. And two, someone's put a number somewhere and put a flag right. in the ground. And I think that that you know, so that so I think those are important pieces of information. And there was an interesting piece over the weekend um, I was reading from Morgan Stanley. So that this is not my work, but they had a really interesting uh, chart, uh, at least with respect to the U.S. And they basically said that, you know, if you, and it's their assumptions, they're, they're valid assumptions, but if you take a 10-day um, moving average and you apply it to the 10 states that are seeing the highest rates of vaccination, you would not get to 75% in the U.S., um, until late July. I believe they had July 29th. I could be slightly off, but it was late July. And if you take a 10 day rolling average and you apply it to the state, the 10 states that have the uh, slowest uh, rates of vaccination, you actually don't get to 75% um, for the country until uh, September, early September. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, I thought that was, again, you, you know, you could take a 10 day rolling average. You could take a 20 day rolling average. You could take, you know, you could do five states, you could do 10 states. You know, you could, there's a number of ways, obviously, to do assumptions. But I thought their assumptions were reasonable. And, you know, if, if, if you're not getting to that quote unquote 75% herd immunity until late July, that to me would suggest again that the June FOMC meeting is going to be early because the, because Powell has on many times suggested that, uh, you know, the vaccine is going to, the vaccine and the virus, virus really, is going to dictate um, this recovery and you know this cycle, and if he's true to that, then and, and those kind of estimates from uh, from Morgan are correct, um, you know that that's another interesting way to put it. So we've um, you know we still like rates higher here. Um, we think that the market needs to catch up with the data a little bit. Clearly, there's a lot of foreign demand for U.S. Treasuries, particularly out of Asia, and we're seeing that after the Japanese fiscal year. Uh, you know, change turned into the new fiscal year starting April 1st. We're seeing, and we even saw it in the week or two before the fiscal year flip, but we're definitely seeing some acceleration there. And, you know, so it's not going to be a linear move higher, I don't think. And I think it's more challenging to get to 2% here on 10 year treasuries, um, you know, you know, from 155, 160, you know, than it was to get from, you know, one to 150, um, you know, the, the first half of that, so to speak. Um, but, but I, but I do think that, uh, we are going to be headed higher as importantly, this part of the cycle, we're going to see the rest of the rest of the world catch up, uh, particularly Europe. Uh, we're seeing the vaccination rates in Europe, uh, move at a very, very, and for treasuries, I think is not necessarily going to be there, uh, from Europe. So as, and clearly there are pockets of the world that are in, in a really bad spot and it's, it's very challenging and very difficult to watch, but there are big parts of the world from an economy perspective, particularly Europe, that are, you know, 
not unlike here, frankly, uh, that had a slow start, but are now kind of slingshotting higher, uh, right. from a, from a vaccine perspective. And that demand for that lack of demand for, or maybe less demand for treasuries, uh, probably helps a little bit, um, to push that higher and a Fed that's going to be a bit slower and inflation that's going to be a bit hotter. Um, I think all kind of combined to continue to see rates higher. We have in our portfolios, um, particularly core and core plus, uh, moved a little bit shorter versus the benchmark. Um, um, pro- around three years or so, um, short versus the benchmark. So if the benchmark's around eight, uh, years, then we're probably a little five, five and a quarter, uh, type neighborhood. Um, and we've, we've added to that short versus benchmark. So it's not absolute short. I want to make that very clear, but it's just short versus right. uh, the benchmark or at least underweight versus the benchmark. And, um, cause we do like that rate story higher. And particularly we like that duration in the 10 year space. Um, around the 10 year space, we kind of removed a lot of the duration around the very long side, the 30, the 30 year space. And we do think that uh, we do still like real, real rates, higher tips, uh, higher. We still think that, that, uh, that those rates can climb as well as, as well as, uh, nominal rates. And we think it's, you know, still constructive for, uh, for EM because the, the, the volatility and move higher here in rates is going to be not as uh, volatile as it was in Q1, uh, uh, into Q2 and Q3. Uh, and with a dollar that looks to be a bit weaker, and we can see a weaker dollar here as well, because Q1 was all about a, you know, uh, an exceptional U.S. Uh, versus the rest of the world. So, oh wow, rates need to be repriced and the dollar's bid. Now the rest of the world's catching up, so the dollar doesn't necessarily need to be bid as rates are moving higher. So we can see a scenario where rates are moving higher, but the dollar is not, and that sh- you know that probably a little more constructive for EM, particularly uh, local currency EM. Um, EM local currency, uh, debt, you know, versus, uh, versus Q1. So, um, you know, we, lo- we like that. We like, you know, we like risk. We like the reflation trade. We, we like dollar Canada lower. Um, we still think, uh, you know, commodities are heading higher and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a constructive narrative. Obviously there are parts of the world, particularly EM that are, that are in, you know, in, in bad shape and, uh, you know, um, that's, that's absolutely to be paid attention to. But right now we think it's, it's a pretty good environment for risk. And this, you know, this recalibration, as I kind of coined it early in January, probably, uh, still needs to happen, um, closer to 175 and, and maybe beyond. Uh, and we've seen a decent amount of capitulation and, and market, um, positioning washout here. Uh, in the first few weeks of the quarter when everybody was short rates, you know, short prices, um, raise higher. We've seen that. We've seen that capitulate maybe 50 or 60%. So a lot of that long positioning, I'm sorry, short positioning or long rate positioning is, uh, is gone. And that enables, that should enable rates to, to move higher now that the positioning in the trade is not as crowded. Dustin, I'll, I'll stop you there. Thanks so much for taking the time. Very informative. Thanks very much for having me. Have a good week. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. 
Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.